I want to give a little bit of a review tonight about what we talked about this morning. That I think the key is to begin is this, that, that the criterion by which God measures a church, a good church, the criterion by which you measure any work of God is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Anything else is just, you know, your uh, hype and all that stuff. So that when the disciples went out into the world and they encountered these little groups called the church, the people of the way, they asked them first out, right up front, have you received the Holy Spirit? And what they wanted them to understand is this, that unless the Holy Spirit is present in what they were doing, it will never amount to anything. And when they started selecting deacons, they chose seven men full of the Holy Spirit. And so this church in Acts, in the, in the 29th verse, is a church filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a good church. And we mentioned that, the character, that, that what that means is that that church is manifesting the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And when the church begins to manifest the characteristics of the nature of the Holy Spirit, four things will result. There'll be four things, seeable things, and these four things will be the marks of a good church. <clears throat> Some kind of a, to, to make it in kind of an alliteration, first, there will be a unified fellowship, and they had everything in common. And it says that they were of one mind and one heart, one mind and heart, and that double emphasis was to emphasize the totality of their oneness. They were absolutely one in thought and affection. They were as Jesus and God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. There was no division. And there was no strife or bickering. They were absolutely one. And this oneness was the greatest proof that God had sent Jesus into the world. Jesus said that himself. Now, not only was there the absence of strife and bickering, but there was the presence of a unified objective. For the Holy Spirit has one objective. You remember what that was? If you don't know that, you, we, we're missing the whole point. The one objective of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to magnify Him. And He's not the least bit interested in anything else than that. And we're spinning our wheels if we try to get the Holy Spirit interested in anything but to magnify and glorify Jesus. That's His office work. And so there is this unified objective of, the, of magnifying, glorifying Jesus. Second point. Unified fellowship. Second point. A recognized stewardship. And this stewardship was expressed in two ways. There was the stewardship of one's possessions. And everybody in the church recognized that they owned nothing. Everybody in the church had this understanding that what they had, their possessions, were really a sacred trust given by God to be offered back to Him whenever He needed them, whenever there was a need. And so they brought their possessions and everybody had ev everything in common and they just made available to God their possessions for they recognized they owned nothing for themselves. And this manifestation of the Holy Spirit is, is a manifestation of liberality. I didn't make this clear enough this morning in the second service. I, I was disappointed. 
I need to say it again tonight, that there is no way for you to, as a church, to be, uh, in, be filled with the Holy Spirit and not mag magnify or manifest liberality. It's not possible. You can't have the Holy Spirit in control of your life, the Spirit of God, and be stingy with your possessions. Because the nature of God is the nature of liberality. He gives to all men liberally. And so when He possesses us and controls us by His Spirit, which is the expression of God, he, you, cannot be lib, uh, you cannot be anything but liberal. You can't be stingy. And this stewardship not only was a stewardship of possessions, it was a stewardship of preaching. And they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now we come to point three. Here's where we take off on something new. A unified fellowship, a recognized stewardship, a purified membership. Now we've got to go to chapter 5 to get that. Because it just moves in. You know in the Greek New Testament, the original language, the original New Testament, there are no chapter divisions, no verse divisions. It just all flows. And, and, and there is, this chapter division looks like we're moving into something new. It's not. All of a sudden we move out of this, uh, this description of this church that is, is, is manifesting the Holy Spirit like like those things we talked about. And all of a sudden we come to this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Is there anybody here tonight that doesn't know that story? I bet you everybody knows the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let me just kind of bring you up to date. We're not going to read that verse, that passage right now. It goes from 1 to 15 in chapter 5. But these, this man and his wife, they were part of this fellowship. They were part of this church that recognized they owned nothing, that everything was a sacred trust to be given up to God when He had need, and, and, and they knew that. And all around them, they were seeing these people do that, and they wanted to be you know, recognized as being spiritual without paying the price of spirituality. And so they, they were, they were, they were uh, deceitful and hypocritical, and they were wanting to look like they were spiritual when they weren't. And so they came, they sold some property like the rest, but they just brought half of its value and laid it at the feet of the apostles. You know that story, don't you? And both of them God killed right on the spot. Does that story look like it's out of place? It does, doesn't it? It looks like somebody's messing with a narrative here. Put that story right in here. It just doesn't look, look like it fits. For here you got this thriving church that's filled with the Holy Spirit and and there's this wonderful news about this church, and all of a sudden you've got Ananias and Sapphira you're cheating on God, and there is deceit and hypocrisy, and God kills them right on the spot. Looks like somebody's messed with a narrative. Now I want to say three or four things about this story. Won't you get these down? This down. This sin of deceit that was going on in the church. And I want to lead up to the to the kicker. So just hang in here with me. The sin that, this sin of insincerity or deceit of hypocrisy was prompted by the devil. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why Satan filled your heart? It's in the passive voice. It's the same word he just used above when he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's saying. This is what's going on here. He's saying, why is it that you have allowed the Holy, you have allowed the unholy spirit, Satan, 
to fill your heart with deceit and hypocrisy and insincerity? For insincerity and deceit and hypocrisy are prompted by the devil. Now, the church encountered two major persecutions, that early church. They, they encountered persecution from without and pollution from within. And, it, and, and, and what, what Peter is saying is this, don't you see that Satan is, we, is trying to squeeze his way and wedge his way into the church and disturb the church? And the way he's doing it is by causing you to be deceitful and insincere in your worship and a hypocrite. Isn't that the way he works? And whenever the church begins to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he, he tries to wedge his way into that church. And the way he does it is by, is by causing hypocrisy and insincerity and deceit on the part of Christians, prompted by the devil. Secondly, this sin of insincerity is, is premeditated. Now he said, you've conceived this, you've planned this, you've conspired this in your heart. And in the verse above it, he said that, it said that Ananias planned this and, 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 and conspired this in the full knowledge of his wife. This is a conspiracy. Now listen to me carefully. Hypocrisy, you never drift into hypocrisy. Insincerity, you don't, just, you don't just drift into that. You don't just slip into insincerity or hypocrisy or deceit. That's a premeditated act by people who want to appear spiritual and who are not. That's what hypocrisy is. It's, it's acting out something that's not genuine. It's actually the word that, 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 that comes from the theater. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain and he encountered God there and his glory was so great that he had put a veil over his face and the veil was there to remind the people that Moses had the glory. And after a period of time, the glory faded. Moses kept the veil on, not to keep the glory hidden, but to keep the fact that the glory was gone was hidden. I wonder how many of you wear a veil tonight, a mask. And, and I wonder how much of what we do is just pretense. And, and so we premeditate and we plan and we conspire to look like something, somebody we're not. It's premeditated. This sin of insincerity is pretending to be spiritual. Now there's an interesting thing that happens in verse 8. I want you to notice that, verse 8. It says in verse 8 that Peter responded to her. Now if you want to read that passage... Uh, Safari didn't ever say anything to Peter. I mean, he, and he says he answered her. He responded to her. She never did say anything to him. Yes, she did. Her actions was her response. Her actions was her speech. I want you to get the picture of this woman kind of fritzing in this church. You know, her, she didn't know her husband had died. God struck him dead. But she comes prancing into the church looking so pious and so spiritual, pretending to be somebody she wasn't. It's the sin of pretending to be spiritual when we're not. The fourth, this sin of insincerity paralyzes the church of Jesus Christ. And you can just see this movement of the church come to a grinding halt. The church is on fire and the church is moving and God is moving within the church and blessing. And all of a sudden we just come to this interlude, this this little parenthesis 
It's kind of like what happened over in, in the book of Joshua when the, when, when the army of God had gone into the land. They was taking city after city until Achan sinned in the city of Ai and hid in the, in the, in the middle of, the, of his tent those vessels, those things that were contaminated and forbidden. And the whole process of God's moving in victory in the new land came to a paralysis because of the sin of insincerity. Now, whenever we stop being hypocritical, whenever we stop pretending, whenever we stop trying to look spiritual and we're not, whenever we take the veil off and be vulnerable and transparent and open and honest, Whenever we stop playing games with God, that's when this church is going to start moving again, and not until. That's when the church starts moving again, not until. Now, I've come to this point I want to make tonight. This sin is purged by the Holy Spirit. Purged by the Holy Spirit. Now it seems to me, when you read chapter 5 of, of the book of Acts, it seems like, as I indicated a while ago, that this thing is out of place. It just doesn't seem like this story ought to be there. But when you get to thinking about it, and when you look at this, you begin to understand that's, that's, that's exactly, it's exactly where this story belongs. Because when the Holy Spirit is in control of a church, it's just not possible for deceit and hypocrisy to exist there. And wherever there is deceit and hypocrisy and insincerity and the church is being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to make it very clear where that insincerity and that hypocrisy and that deceit is. He'll expose it every time. And God still deals in the Spirit-filled church, God still deals with hypocrisy and insincerity. And you say, in the same way, I mean, He kills folks? Probably not, and you ought to be real glad He doesn't. I mean, I am. But He still deals with it the same way. Now watch this carefully. The death may not be the same, but it might be worse. It might, be, it might mean that your prayer life dies or your worship life dies, or your fellowship dies, or your spiritual life dies, and that might be worse than death itself. It might be worse that a person's prayer life dies and his fellowship with God dies than for him to die. But I can promise you this, that when the Holy Spirit is in control of the church, Insincerity and hypocrisy will not be able to exist in the rarefied air of the Spirit's control. Now, I picked up the Dallas Morning News a few months back, and I was, I was startled when I read the headlines over in the religious section that read like this, Waco Pastor Admits Homosexuality. And I read that story, I knew that guy. I, I, I knew him well. I was his, I was his 
his mother and father's pastor, Seminole, Texas. He, he grew up out there. And the, and the story was that, that this preacher in, in Waco, Texas, was admitted that he had had homosexual liaisons with some of his own church members. My son went to church out there. And, and he was so excited about that church, and it was so alive and so, you know, so uh, dynamic. I mean, most of the Baylor kids went out there, or a great portion of them. And I got to thinking, now I was reading that, and I thought, now, something goofy here. That, that probably, I was thinking, probably what was going on in that church was just hype. There wasn't anything genuine going on about it. And then I thought, no. The fact that that preacher was exposed for who he was and what he was was the greatest testimony to the infilling of the Holy Spirit in that church. Because when the Holy Spirit is in control of a church, deceit and hypocrisy and insincerity, let it be a warning, will be exposed. Now there are four reasons why he purges the church of insincerity. There are four reasons why he purifies the church. Now get these please. First, is because he wants a holy people. He wants a holy people. Now I'm sure God can get along without a church full of, uh, you know, intellectuals and rich folks, impressive people. I'm sure he can get along without them. I remember when I was a, I used to pick up an evangelist at the airport and I'd bring him in and say, man, you're going to like our church. We got lawyers and we got, we got bankers and we got football coaches and man, I was bragging on the people. And that is great. Well, let me tell you something. What God wants in a church is a church of holy people. Holy people. And holiness means being like the God, becoming like the God who made you. And brokenness always predicates or precedes holiness. Brokenness always, always precedes holiness. So that if you want to be a holy person, a holy church, be sure and remember what you're, what you're asking for because brokenness always comes before holiness. Second, now here's the kicker. He purges a church because he wants to bring fear upon the people. Now if you want to read this account, I hope you will, it said that when they, folks both in the church and outside the church heard about Ananias and Sapphira struck dead, fear gripped them. I can't imagine. Would me? Fear. I tell you, there is no fear of God. John Killinger said it. Told, tell about, told about this couple sat down for dinner at the, after church one Sunday and, and, the, and they were eating lunch and the little boy said, why don't we call God by his name? And, and the daddy said, well, what is his name? What, what do you mean? He said, well, it's hallowed, isn't it? Don't we say, hallowed is thy name? I mean, you know, a little kid says. Why don't we, that's a good question. 
Why don't we call him by his name? Uh, uh, let me give you a bigger question. Why don't we hallow his name? For to hallow his name means that we make, we recognize that his name is sacred and holy. And so we use the name of God so carelessly and easily do we use the name of God. But the ancient Jew would never even speak his name. That's why we have the little abbreviation called Yahweh. Only one time a year did the Jew ever say God's name and the high priest did it once a year. He called his name. Now all the other, all the other nations could call their gods by their names if they wanted to. But their gods wasn't like their, the Jews' God. And they would not call his name out loud. To call his name was to bring the power of a thousand thunderstorms. They hallowed his name. And so we, 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 with such ease, we refer to God, sometimes irreverently, And we, and we hawk him on, in our newspapers and books and even on television. And we plaster his name on billboards and on bumper stickers. And we haven't the slightest idea of what that name really means. For there is no fear of God. There is no fear of God. And when there is no fear of God and no knowledge of the holy... Nothing is sacred anymore. Now hang in here with me. When there is no knowledge of the holy and there is no fear of God, nothing sacred. You ask me, you say, prove there is no fear of God. You just, you just watch people come to church and you just look out over the congregation while somebody like this man of God singing that marvelous song. While You just watch what people do while he's doing that. And you just look, watch people, look at people while the preacher preaches. And you look at any giving record of anybody in this church and you see how much fear of God exists. And where there is no fear of God, nothing is sacred. And so the newspaper account tells about this gang of youth, motorcycle gang, went through this cemetery knocking over tombstones and smoking pot and having sex on the grave. And an old man was trying to repair his beloved wife's grave and the newspaper man was there to hear him ask, is there nothing sacred anymore? Good question. Because when there is no fear of God, there is nothing sacred anymore. Not marriage, not business, not sex, not money. Nothing is sacred where there is no fear of God. Because the, the hallowedness of God, this sacredness, this fear, this reverence of God is the tent pole that holds everything up. You ever try to put a tent up without getting the pole right? We were on our mission trip two years ago out in Phoenix and when my job was to help set up a tent in the backyard of this house. I'm a terror, I'm awful. I can't even change a light bulb. And, and some of our kids, I don't know, Chris, some of them, they, these guys, they do everything on the farm. They, they came over there and they got the tent pole right. I mean, they got the pole in the middle. And you, you know, you, 
the, the, the reverence of God, the sacredness of the, the knowledge of the holy is the tent pole that holds everything up. And in the 50s, in the late 50s and the early 60s, a young German girl went out to her cathedral and she painted, she scrawled on the wall of that cathedral these words, Elvis Presley, my God. And they kind of laughed at that because after all it was just some German, that was just some Fraulein who was kind of caught up with a Western idol. Little did they understand that that symbolized a growing agnosticism in the Western world. And that growing agnosticism has pervaded our world. And the result is nothing is sacred anymore. And when nothing is sacred, then our moral compass goes all kelter, it goes wild. And so God purged that church because He wanted to create some fear in the hearts of the people. Oh God, I hope. He doesn't have to do that again like that. Third reason he did that is because he wanted to produce growth. I mean genuine growth, real growth. Now anybody can go in there in a record book and indicate that we've had growth, ministerially speaking. You know, we talk about that. The interesting thing about this passage is that it says that there were a lot of folks in town didn't want to join that church. I can imagine that. I mean, would you want to go down there where lightning bolts were flashing around? You might get hit. Who, wants, who would want to go down there and join the First Baptist Church in this town where lightning bolts are popping all around? But the amazing thing is that when you read, beginning in verse 11, those people who did meant business. Those people who did join that church meant business. And you just read that, and it's exciting. It says... And much more they were added to that church daily. I mean, the thing took off. There is a fourth reason, hear this well, that he purged the church is because he wanted the church to become the healing agency of the world. Now, I've got to read this. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that even they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any, any one of them. Hear me. The church purified is the church powerful. And if this church is to be a healing agency, a hospital, and I think it's what, isn't that what we're supposed to be? And if this church is to be a redeeming, healing agency in Durant, Oklahoma, it'll happen when the church is purged of its insincerity and its hypocrisy and it's deceit when it's pure. Get this scenario. You're standing in line down at Winn-Dixie or Homebound or Best Yet or Greenspray in case those people think I'm giving a, a uh, co commercial for one. You're standing in line 
And you hear this guy standing in front of you talking to the, to the clerk. He says, I'm new in town. I'm getting everything located. Uh, you know where the hospital is, where, where, people get, where, you, where you can take people when they get sick? And you punch him on the shoulders and you say, yeah, I, I can tell you where, you where it is. It's down on the corner of 2nd and Evergreen. It's down there where people are meeting who care about the needs and the hurts of others. And, 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 and down there, that's the best place I know for you to call, go when you have pain and suffering and need because it's there where people will love you and care for you. It's there where you can be healed. Wouldn't you like to see that happen? That happens when the church is pure, when it has been purged, when it has been purified. And so he purified the church and purged it because he wanted it to become the healing agency of the community. All right, now, a spirit-filled church is a church that is purified in its membership. One last thing. Just a little bit more of what I said this morning on that, on that last one. It's a church that recognizes lordship. I want you to turn back to the fourth chapter and read with me verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And underline the word Lord. It's not the normal word for Lord in the New Testament. Once you get this language, it is the word that means absolute dictator, despot in the purest sense. And they said, they confessed that Jesus Christ was the absolute dictator of their life. And they had no claim to rights, privileges, or freedoms. Now, I'm not going to say what all I said this morning about that. I want to say this, that there is no saviorhood without lordship. It's amazing how we get things so tangled up and we underemphasize some stuff and overemphasize others. And I think that we have overemphasized saviorhood and underemphasized lordship. And that might be the, 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 you know, the, the real problem in the world, in, in the church world, in the, in the, in the religious community, is that, is that there is this absence of, a, of, a, of an understanding that we, he is, if he is savior, he's lord. Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when the Philippian jailer came in and asked the Apostle Paul how he could be saved, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So that a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a church that recognizes His absolute Lordship. Now we talk about making Him Lord. You can't make Him Lord. He's already Lord. You can recognize His Lordship.
And that's what we have to do. A man in Dallas, Texas, a real estate broker, wrote this. I was living life in the fast lane. Condos, horses, drug parties, Ferraris, and Porsches. But it was empty and growing more and more so. Nothing seemed to satisfy me. I tried drugs, bigger and bigger business deals, but nothing filled the emptiness. I cursed, oh, how I cursed. Yet my voice just rattled around, listen to this, just rattled around like the universe was a house where nobody was at home. Then he met Christ through a woman he dated. And he learned about prayer. And he learned about humility and reverence, fear of God. And he learned about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he said, my life was turned around. Now, I get more thrill out of a candle in our kitchen table, on our kitchen table than I used to get from all those explosive things. I'm more excited about the song of a bird than I was about all those parties I was going to. Bread tastes better. Sex feels keener. My mind is clearer. Life is richer than I ever knew it could be. I get up every day and say, Hallelujah. You can get up in the morning and you can say hallelujah if his name is hallowed if Jesus is Lord you can get up in the morning and say hallelujah in fact you can say that tonight if Jesus Christ if you have recognized that he's Lord of the situation and the circumstance and the problems and the needs. He is Lord of the joys and the sorrows. He's Lord of the business and the, and the, and the, and the children. He's Lord of the work. He's Lord of the life, of the sin, of the habit, of the attitude, of the bitterness, of the loneliness. He's Lord. And as Havana says, he demands more allegiance than any dictator who's ever lived. The only difference is he has a right to it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> our Father, we cannot read about a church like this and not say in our heart, cry out in our heart, O oh Lord, do that again here. And there's some, maybe, Father, who are here that need to bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ who have unyielded areas, unsurrendered corners, closets, rooms. I pray, God, that you'll do a work among us now that will purify the fellowship because I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now I'm going to ask you tonight in a spirit of prayer to consider God's call to your life in areas of lordship, to be Savior and Lord, to be saved, to be a more committed Christian, to join the church.
to let God dictate to you His will concerning your response. And so, if you'll ask Him, He'll do it, and we'll have two stanzas. That's plenty of time for Him to do what He wants to do with you. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.